We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation and that we must show respect towards all First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people and their valuable past and present contributions to the land. In the year 2001, the Amnesty International Annual Reports Canada section read as follows. There were allegations of patterns of police abuse against First Nation men in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. There were reports that members of Saskatoon City Police had for a number of years had an unofficial policy of abandoning intoxicated or troublesome members of the Indigenous community away from the population centre of Saskatoon, thereby placing them at great risk of dying of hypothermia during the winter months. Cases like these are popularly called Starlight Tours and they have been happening for quite a while before the report was published. In the year 1990, a body of a young male was found in the northwestern city limits of Saskatoon. The body was identified as Neil Stonechild, age 17. An investigation by Saskatoon City Police followed, though they'd originally found no evidence of foul play. In the year 2000, Daryl Knight, an indigenous Saskatoonian resident, survives a starlight tour. Left in the cold by two Saskatoon police officers, he finds his way to the Queen Elizabeth Power Station, where he's led in by a night watchman. He gets the word out and his story is told. Starlight Tour, The Last Lonely Night of Neil Stonechild, co-written by Robert Renaud and our guest, Suzanne Reber, recounts the landmark investigation that followed the public discovery of Starlight Tours and paints a portrait of rogue cops, racism, obstruction of justice, and justice denied. Let's hear from Suzanne. Well, my name is Suzanne Reber. I'm a journalist and an editor. And mainly for the past couple of decades, I've been really working on investigative type material. I've always been rooted in radio, but I've done all kinds of different things, um, documentaries. I've worked with teams that were working in multiple mediums, multiple languages, all kinds of different things. But at the time when I wrote Starlight Tour, I was in charge of the investigative team inside National Radio News, which is a part of CBC radio and we were already working with journalists from radio and television at the time. I was actually working on the CBC investigation into what happened in the year 2000 which kind of kick-started my interest in what happened in Saskatchewan and then what led to writing the book. And so uh, we'll start with I guess just overviewing uh, the main thrust of the story, which obviously is our main interest in talking to you, the, the topic of Starlight Tours. So I guess we'll start with uh, perhaps the biggest question in that regard, which is what were the Starlight Tours? It came to our attention that there were all these men who were dying in Saskatoon and they were freezing to death. And they were all dying around the same time. In fact, there were quite a few deaths in the space of, I think it was a week or so. And we were like, what is going on in Saskatoon? We refer to it as the freezing deaths. But as we started researching, we realized that in the indigenous community in Saskatoon, this was nothing new. To us, sitting in Toronto, and even to some of the people in, in Saskatchewan who are maybe not in the indigenous community, might be in the Caucasian community, they really had never heard of this. Uh, a lot of indigenous people describe it as a tar starlight tour is when the police pick you up and instead of taking you to the police station, which they're legally entitled to do, they don't do that. They take you to the outside of town, drop you off in the middle of winter and let you fend for yourself, which in the case of Many of the men in that period in the year 2000 basically was a death sentence because they froze to death. 
and uh, it's it's a it's a pretty horrible um, way to die. I I would talk about this and think about it as sort of death by Canada because if you're left out there and it's minus 25 minus 27 you're not going to last long and um, and that's how a lot of these men died and so we we just wanted to know what was going on there and so we started looking into it we set up a team to investigate this in the year 2000 but we ran into some a lot of problems. Um, we sent reporters, we asked questions, and we found very quickly that actually everybody had gone to ground and nobody really wanted to talk about it because it was so uh, intense and there was a real division between what people knew in the communities in, in, in Saskatchewan, in the Indigenous communities, versus what we could find out as journalists. Because in order to find things out, we really, really have to get sources to talk to you. And in this case, Nobody wanted to talk about it. We didn't really look at it until 2003 because we ran into all these issues. At the time when a story is, is really breaking, often isn't the right time to go really deep. And so what had changed by 2003 that allowed you to be able to tell the story more effectively? People often feel more comfortable with a little bit of time passing. They felt less sensitive. They felt less paranoid that there could be more of these deaths. So, and also with the public inquiry, we know that the mechanisms of subpoenas, you know, people being compelled to go to the inquiry and tell their version of the truth, we knew that those would be going out. So we wanted to get in there and talk to people before the subpoenas went out. Once some time had passed and more information about Starlight Tours came to light with the survival of Daryl Nine in the year 2000, the RCMP set up to investigate the conduct of Saskatoon police forces in what was at the time the largest task force in Saskatoon history. This task force was called Project Ferric. Ferric was essentially created to, to look at the freezing deaths and then very quickly they all start, started looking at the uh, Stonechild case. So in a way it was just a huge mandate. The RCMP investigation was set up to investigate these freezing deaths. And, and that's a bit of a delicate thing because you've got an RCMP investigation looking at the conduct of the Saskatoon police. So that's obviously a tense set of circumstances. So they come along and they were brought in because of these freezing deaths. They'd only been going uh, for a couple of days. You know, when they started this, they had all these officers that were coming into Saskatoon. They didn't even have enough hotel rooms to put them all up. It's this massive organization. And as they're actually investigating these first set of, of facts, another story comes to light. And that's the story of Neil Stonechild, which was broken in the local newspaper. So at the time when Project Ferric was set up, Neil Stonechild wasn't even on people's radar. And within a few days, that case came up. And so actually one of the first things that the officers in charge of the RCMP investigation did is to phone up Don Worm and say, look, we are going to look into this. Because Don Worm was already representing Neil Stonechild's mom. The Don Worm mentioned here is Donald Worm, a lawyer who represented many of the victims of the Saskatoon City Police's Starlight Tours. It's It was such a powerful moment of time. There was all this stuff going on. All these families are grieving. Daryl Knight is, you know, being protected by his lawyer. They're worried he's, somebody's going to come after him and kill him. And all of this is happening. Um, and in the middle of all of it is Don Worm representing all these families, trying to basically figure it out himself. And then you've got the police, uh, in, in the case of the RCMP, trying to figure out, you know, is there a cover-up going on? Who's doing what? What kind of people could actually be doing this inside the police? And um, as we know, investigating this, 
you've also got members of the Saskatoon police who are um, still very much trying to bury a lot of this stuff because some of them knew at least how long this had been going on, but um, it was it was just a period of intense scrutiny on on the Saskatoon police, and this was all happening in the year 2000. So we we just didn't know as much then as I do now about everything that was going on behind the scenes. But you know, trying to figure out all this stuff going back, you know, all these years, decades earlier, and realizing that what a lot of uh, people were hearing in the community was these are isolated incidents. This is not a pattern, but uh, of course, as we discovered, it very much had happened before. And in fact, it had happened when we did our investigation, it had happened as early as the 60s. Um, it's just that, you know, some of those cases that we were able to document from earlier, these drop-offs had happened in the summer, not in the winter. So the earliest deaths that we that we can document is actually Neil Stonechild. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean it doesn't didn't happen. I'm just telling you that in journalism, you can only write about the stuff you can prove, which does not mean that there might not have been other incidents that we just don't know about. But we obviously investigated for several years, and what we were able to document is the story of the book. So Farrakh became um, a character in our book, and that the individuals at the heart of that investigation became part of the narrative. What we know about now, having done the investigation, having done all the research for the book, we know that at the time when Neil Stonechild uh, died, there were already a lot of questions by certain people. They asked some key questions early on. There's a drawing about some of the questions that were asked, but he died uh, missing you know, his ball cap that he always would wear. She was always asking where was the ball cap. There were just certain things about the death scene that were puzzling. And so what we know is that there was a very cursory investigation done, that the officer in charge of that investigation didn't really do much, that there was an indigenous officer who tried to ask a lot of questions because the family was encouraging him trying to get his help. His name was Ernie Luted, and it turned out that he was only able to do that for a period of time before he got kind of discouraged, let's say, from doing it. They described the investigations as being thorough when we, in fact, know they weren't. And I think they did at one point try to mislead the, the journalist by, you know, waving piles of paper in front of them saying, look, it, it was a huge investigation. I think a binder was presented to one of the local reporters that also shows up in our book. There was just a, an attempt to, to mislead, I would say. Um, and that all came out in the inquiry later. The police did try and deflect further investigation, and certainly by the journalists. It was a pretty tough investigation for the RCMP to look into it because there wasn't much to go on. The book was republished in 2019, including a preface that spoke on Canada's evolving relationship with Indigenous peoples since the book's initial publication. We asked Reaver about the significance of republishing the book and the inclusion of this preface. You know, the reason we we wanted to publish the update, and, and I'm very grateful to Random House for doing that, is we wanted to draw further attention to the fact that there needs to be ongoing scrutiny. And so even though it was first published in 2005, so much had happened. There was There's ongoing questions about reconciliation that we felt it was important to remind people that this case, which of course to a lot of new readers, they might not even have known because so many years had passed, this case looked at some of the key systemic police abuses. And it was actually the case that was at the heart of why human rights organizations at the time put Canada on a hit list as an abuser. And that's a pretty unusual position for Canada to be in. I mean, Canadians love 
loved to think of themselves as peacekeepers and fighting for human rights. And so I just think it's an important reminder that sometimes looking back at the history in which of course we know is happening increasingly you know every every other year there's more information that comes out that people have to grapple with and so we just felt that publishing the book again and, and allowing people to look at some of these patterns might explain uh why we just can't stop we have to hold the police accountable we have to hold the government accountable and that various apologies from the government isn't going to be enough. Republishing the book was an attempt to talk about it again. And so I, I really think that's that's obviously a very personal response, but we can only really solve these problems if we keep talking about them. So in that way, I encourage, you know, any, all of the journalists who are writing about these issues now, people write, you know, writing movies or scripts or plays or whatever, however they want to engage Canadians and, and people beyond Canada as well to really think about the history of police violence and police abuse and just the incredible abuses of power that have happened in society and that really the only way to move forward is to keep talking about it. Absolutely. And I just want to follow up on something that you touched on there. You mentioned just now and also in the book that the Saskatoon Police Force, while under the microscope of the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission, uh, was also under the microscope of Amnesty International in Canada was part of their report in 2001. And I was just wondering if you could expand it all about the significance of Canada being on these human rights watch lists. When Canada ended up on that list, I think it's a very significant moment in time for us as Canadians to think about what does that mean when the only time I can think of that Canada was, was on that list is because of how our police services are treating Indigenous people. And so the case of the Starlight Tours highlighted that. I think that's pretty telling. And for us to think about that and really examine that, I think it's an important moment. That particular time and the fact that it, it was probably one of the first times that the international community was looking at, at, at Canada in that way. And so why that's for me, for me why it's so significant and on a personal level it really forced me to think about Canada in a different way. And so often, you know, when people would interview me about the book or talk to me about the book, I would say, you know, this is, this is a very sad story in Canadian history of leasing. To know what it feels like when your son doesn't come home one night and is, you know, found frozen to death in, in an empty field. Uh, that, was, that was my main goal, is to really bring that to life and let people really understand it and read it like it was a novel only the tra the sad truth it's not a novel it's true and that's why we wrote it in the style of a novel uh, because we want people to find it accessible to be able to really to really feel what it's like and including the humor um, because the family of neil they were actually quite funny in a lot of ways there are sections of the book when they intend the inquiry where they you know they're trying to deal with some of the pain by, by making jokes about certain things, about who's in the inquiry room or whatever. So we tried to include all of the humanity that we could, even in, in a story where it's obviously incredibly sad. And, and But uh, so I'm hoping people can take away from the story and because of the style in which it's written, they can, they can better understand what it's like in some of the communities where maybe it's your daughter that, that is one of the missing and murdered women. But it's, there's some universal truth there about 
what can happen when, when violence rips apart communities. And obviously in the case of Canada, a lot of that violence is systemic and it's historic. As a writer, as a journalist, you, you, you sometimes have to, it's really hard, but you have to actually stay on your focus. And in this case, we really wanted to go deep on, on what happened in Saskatoon and we couldn't actually expand it to the whole country. But I think there's lessons here that are very national and potentially global. So I, I just think there's some pretty big lessons for all of us. That's what human rights is, is thinking about the rights of all of us. What are our human rights? What does it take to uphold them? Canada has, has a strong history of upholding human rights all over the world. So I think what's important in Canada is to remember we, ha we also have to hold ourselves accountable. As journalists, we have to keep writing about it. As writers, we have to keep writing about it and documenting as best we can what's going on in, in, in Canada at the moment, but also what happened in the past that can inform the present. The Starlight Tours in Saskatoon are one of many cases in recent history of human rights violations against Indigenous peoples in Canada. Residential schools, for example, are more recent than one might think, with the last residential school closing in 1996. The Starlight Tours are ongoing as well. In 2018, Ken Thompson, an Indigenous man, accused the Saskatoon City Police of taking him on a Starlight Tour. Human rights and justice, different types of justice that is, are essential to the well-being of all persons. Specifically, restorative justice and reparations are topics that must be considered when examining the human rights violations faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada. Our next guest, Professor John Packer at the University of Ottawa, is an expert in this field. Let's let him introduce himself. Hi, my name is John Packer. I'm Director of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. I'm also an Associate Professor of Law attached to both sections, uh, the common law and civil law section of the Faculty of Law at the University. I'm also holder of a endowed professorship called the Newberger Jessen Professorship of International Conflict Resolution. And my own area of work for many, many years has been in international peace mediation, which is essentially trying to resolve, prevent, or diminish the violence of conflicts in international settings. So I worked for the United Nations for about 11 years. I worked with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe for nine years, and I still do quite a bit of work in different parts of the world. The Human Rights Research and Education Centre, where Professor John Packer is the director, had actually played a vital role in the creation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is often looked at as the cornerstone of human rights protection in Canada. The broad concept of justice, and we often think about justice, has different elements. Usually there's types of justice, there's distributive justice. We can distribute resources fairly, restorative justice, to put things back into a situation they ought to be. Retributive justice, to have wrongdoing uh, acknowledged and um, for not only correction, but also to ensure, for example, for deterrence and other purposes and so forth. There's procedural justice, the processes, fair opportunity and so forth. Now, one aspect of, um, of retributive justice and restorative justice is that not only wrongs should be corrected, but that wrongs that have caused harm, uh, and usually these are two associated, should be repaired. And so reparation is the idea that uh, in the ideal form, person should be brought whole into their position that existed before the harm was done. Now, unfortunately, there are kinds of harms that are not perfectly repairable in the sense of status quo ante, the exact situation before. I mean, if you've had lost a limb, there's not a way of actually putting back that limb in the perfect sense of it not having been removed. So then we look at other forms of repair, which are approximative, 
for example, compensation. So instead of getting your limb back, you might get a million dollar settlement. But these may also be intangible repairs, for example, an apology. And so these are what are sometimes considered moral damages. And damages in this sense are the calculable sums of the repair. Uh, so ideally, we think about the Latin phrases restitutio and integrum, that the the full restore position at status quo ante, another Latin for the previous situation, uh, would be fulfilled. And just unfortunately, that's just not the case in many, many situations. I mean, if we're talking, for example, intergenerational harms, the past generation's gone. Uh, so that, that's the thrust of repair. And do you believe reparations to be an essential part of the reconciliation process? I think it's an essential part of justice. And that's why there have been in our country and in other parts of the world, disquiet when the sum total has ended with an apology. An apology is, in the first part, an acknowledgement of harm being done, but also of some responsibility for that harm being done. But it lacks, and it's been criticized in many cases, it lacks that material restorative sense. And uh, and that's especially so when there weren't just wrongdoers, perpetrators, but there are beneficiaries of the harm done. So, you know, uh, if I steal $100 from you, is an apology adequate response? No, presumably you want your 100 bucks back. And, uh, and so an apology might even be galling if all you get is the apology, whereas I've invested $100 and I'm now suddenly a very wealthy person. These things need to be understood in terms of what's possible. Some things are not possible in this full restorative sense. And then what are the ranges of within the realm of possibility, including feasible? And, and those kind of questions come up in exactly this kind of situation. In law in general, most positive law, meaning the existing law, factor of time is very much taken into account. And so various kinds of harms are limited both procedurally and substantively by time. So you might have heard the phrase, a statute of limitations, which is literally a law piece of legislation. And then in most other piece of legislation, there may be stipulated time limitations, especially procedurally, uh, when, for example, a claim might expire, because it's in the nature of life that as time goes on, not only experiences, knowledge, evidence, and so forth dissipates or changes, our memories change and all the rest. So it's very difficult to kind of turn these things, unwind them. We place time limitations, uh, both, as I say, procedurally, but also substantively. There are literally things that, you know, not only memories fade, but as people die, memories are lost. So th these are problematical aspects. Now, there are certain things for which we say there are no limitations. For example, international crimes, such as war crimes or crimes against humanity, are specifically not limited in time. They still require an individual, a natural person, to be arrested and tried and so forth. So there are many, many problem aspects about this. The first question is, who is responsible? And that's partly been answered in Canada because our concept of the crown and the succession of Canada as a state, and since our 1982 constitution, has taken over the responsibilities of the original crown, the British crown. So, you know, until then, and in different degrees, and you know, we have kind of distinguished crowns, we have provincial crowns, federal crown, and so forth. The question of who, who holds the responsibility in Canada, it is with so-called federal crown, the crown of Canada. And that means in constitutional terms in Canada, we don't actually have crown in the person of a queen, but in fact, it's the state. And the state here is Canada. And that means that the 
public person of the state of Canada carries that responsibility. Our population today is almost 40 million. Many generations of people who recently and previously come to this country from abroad, it's problematical to identify their individual responsibility and the degree to which they share that responsibility as simply being part of the state and can be subject to taxation and all the rest of it. These, we can imagine these things. It's problematic in so far as, for example, I'm sitting right now in my office in Ottawa in a building in the University of Ottawa, which is on unceded territory. There was never a treaty, but you know, there's a billion dollars of University of Ottawa physical assets built here. They're not going to be just removed. You know, it's 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 like physically, literally impossible, essentially, to return status quo ante. How would you do it? I don't think anyone's proposing it either, but just to say that that becomes problematical. So it brings you immediately into the discussions around compensation and other forms of repair. In the 2012 book entitled Colonialism, Slavery, Reparations, and Trade, Remedying the Past, co-edited by Professor Packer and Fern Brennan, they wrote, importantly, the declaration recognizes that the past manifests itself in the present and states have a role in dealing with the consequences. Referring to the Declaration and Program of Action from the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. The book addresses from various perspectives how reparations might be obtained for the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. The abolition of slavery was the single largest expenditure of the uh, exchequer of the British crown in history. Fully 50% of the budget that year was allocated to pay let me just underline, pay whom? Not the slaves, but the slave owners. Because according to law, the slave owners were lawful owners of property, being the slaves. And in order for the state to, when it outlawed it, that rendered these persons who had lawfully obtained property into a position where they were damaged. Their value that they had lawfully obtained was rendered unlawful. Uh, They couldn't retain it. Uh, and they would lose the benefit of their investment and so forth. Bizarrely, kind of perversely, they were compensated with extraordinary expenditures. And the beneficiaries of that, including still existing corporations in London and elsewhere in the Commonwealth, still generate benefits today. I think you sort of hinted at this when you talk about the intergenerational nature of reconciliation questions. But one of the most common arguments used in a popular setting, anyhow, is that reparations claims for intergenerational harm difficult because they've happened too far in the past to really be repaired. Legally speaking, is there any ground for this kind of argument? In the paradigm of international relations and law, the existing paradigm, they're historically and still the principal subjects are states. And uh, human beings are essentially, for a long time, were essentially objects, including objects of trade, such as slaves. Uh, or were protected only insofar as they were instruments of the state, such as diplomats. Um, It's only fairly recent in the last couple hundred years that human beings per se, as individuals, as natural human beings, natural persons, have become also uh, covered under international law with degrees of protection, for example, against breaches of humanitarian law in times of war, or empowered through elements of protection and rights as such as human beings, human rights. Human rights is a really recent century-old in international law idea, a radical idea, but but new. Uh, So uh, in international law, 
the concept that non-states are sovereign, it's largely unsupported by international law. Uh, the idea that a non-state actor possesses so sovereignty means exclusive jurisdiction in legal terms. It means, a, and that means that the that they have the right to prescribe or proscribe conduct in a jurisdictional unit. That means territory or persons. And in international law, that has on the whole been the reserve domain of states. So uh, indigeneity has challenged that. And, uh, and that's why in 1993 at the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna, there was a whole campaign to include the recognition of indigenous peoples with an S, not people, not individuals, but peoples with an S. There was a whole campaign around the letter S and on orange pieces of paper, getting recognition, seeking recognition, so that indigenous peoples would be conferred, what? The right of self-determination as a legal entitlement in positive international law, which means to determine their economic and political uh, systems and life in some kind of jurisdictional terms. So that's new and its content is not clear at all. And even the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples speaks about, it refers to it, but it speaks about a right of autonomy that is unprescribed in specific terms. So this is something which is in, in uh, use another Latin phrase, a delege ferenda. It's a law in its um, uh, process of change. And we will see if there are other sources of sovereignty, to use that word, than state sovereignty that have content and meaning in contemporary international relations. That actually uh, leads us pretty conveniently into our next question, which is about the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so I guess it's uh, it's twofold. The first would just be a follow-up on what you just said. I guess I'm wondering in a broad sense if that document has made significant changes in places like Canada. And then more specifically, I understand that British Columbia has recently adopted it as part of its provincial um, governance. And I was wondering what that means for the reparations conversation in Canada. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is a declaration, it's not a treaty. It was voted upon once and not subsequently. Four countries voted against it, including Canada. The current government of Canada has repeatedly expressed its intention to respect that declaration, but it is not bound in international law to do so. It's a voluntary decision. The declaration is not per se a binding instrument. So. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the declaration is important, the same as the Universal Declaration of Rights. These are important instruments that contain language, which is prescriptive. It tells us how things ought to be. And they have a broad resonance, if not universal. They have very strong normative importance. That is to say that states have said that they aspire to or intend to respect, but they're not technically binding. They can't be invoked. And if they're breached, they do not give rise to what's called the law of state responsibility, which means a wrongdoing that gives rise to reparations specifically. Okay, that understood. Now the question is, what has happened in Canada? Canada, as I say, voted against it initially, and under the current liberal government of Canada, expressed its uh, intention to respect it. And then in Parliament last year, in Bill C-15, after several attempts, there was a piece of legislation, federal act, which committed the government of Canada to align, the word is alignment, to align Canadian law with the uh, United Nations Declaration of Rights and Indigenous Peoples. Now we have no real idea what that alignment means. Now, British Columbia did something more precise, and I don't have the text before me, 
But my understanding is that the government of British Columbia, I think the parliament, but I'm, I'm not sure, the provincial legislature adopted an instrument committing the British Columbia to ensure today that its current practices don't just align, but will respect the Magnitsky Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. To my understanding, they have made it effectively law in British Columbia. I don't know how they're doing that. The implications are enormous, but that, you know, from a point of principle, that's remarkable and probably uh, one would also say laudable if it's going to result in significant changes that it probably should. I have no idea how they're going about doing it. Do they require every new law or every old law now to be scrutinized against the laws, the regulations, the programs, the practices, all the way, that's, it's transformative. And one would say there's great promise in this, but it's also enormously challenging. You know, and I would say as a Canadian, just to say that British Columbia is maybe a great place to start because there are robust Indigenous communities. So they may be doing a favor for the rest of Canada in a, in a kind of leading role. And we will see what they will discover, both in terms of problems, but also solutions. Uh, yes, it will require, again, determination, you know, the political will, but it will also require allocation of resources. I believe, you know, we, we discovered in the context of COVID that, you know, we used to hear a lot that, well, we don't have the money, we don't, well, apparently we found, you know, half a trillion dollars in the last two years to pay for God knows what. If I'm an Indigenous person, I, I don't want to ever hear again that there's not enough money. Uh, I think that's partly why there's been the up to $40 billion uh, compensation around Jordan's principal case, uh, Child and Family Caring Society, because I think the government went in a position that, you know, how could they now deny the resources when they were so easily spending, you know, hundreds of billions on other things. So it is feasible. It may be time consuming and difficult because we're talking about social change here. And even more than social change, we're talking about conceptual change, paradigmatic change. We're talking about effects on large number of people over a long period of time. So we're talking about the effects for changing delivery of services and so forth. Uh, um, but uh, the whole range of things, right? I mean, uh, when there have been injustices and harms done, there are, again, the moral elements, the acknowledgement of wrongdoing. You may get a punitive damage, which is a damage which is not a, an actual loss, but is, is to uh, penalize you. And it's set at a figure that shows the kind of degree of harm and also to send a message. So there are these kind of different elements. So there are the moral repairs, there's the physical repairs, there's kind of opportunity costs lost and, and all those things. All of it is possible. It's really a question of what we want to do, you know, and, and, and technology, by the way, has improved our ability to deliver a lot of these things. For example, how do you repair for the loss of a language? That's pretty difficult. And, and there are many communities that either have no speaker or very few speakers and there are really, uh, sociolinguists will tell you, there are real practical problems of actually revitalizing a language. But it is possible in different measures. And there have been very successful examples, such as Welsh and Wales, or you know, many other examples. I've worked on some myself. But they take time, they take effort, and they might not ever reproduce what was lost, but they may provide the essential continuity that you're looking for, that the group itself maintains its own linguistic identity and its own development henceforth. You know, these are not fixed things. So let me just say there are many possibilities. And those who say things like, oh, it's difficult or it's costly, I think these are kind of shallow excuses and kind of largely false obstacles. Reparation is for many people the core issue uh, because with repair is a kind of demonstrable acknowledgement of wrong. 
and is the basis of a new relationship. It's not just I did wrong and I walk away or I did wrong and I apologize even sincerely, but not a tangible consequence. But I think it really is about changing behavior and changing relationships. So the meat of the matter does come to repair. That $40 billion package for Jordan's principle that Professor Packard mentioned is a real and tangible form of economic reparation seen for Indigenous peoples in Canada. Receiving that package was a victory, but it wasn't easy. If it wasn't for the efforts of those adjacent to and involved with the caring society, like our next guest, compensation packages like this might only be a pipe dream. So my name is Anne Levesque. I'm a professor at the University of Ottawa, the Faculty of Law, where I teach human rights law, and I have a small legal clinic in equality law. I am also a lawyer, so I've been working on the Caring Society case since 2009, um, where uh, the Caring Society filed a human rights complaint with the Assembly of First Nations uh, regarding the underfunding of child welfare services and Canada's failure to implement Jordan's principles. So I started as a junior lawyer. I was pretty much fresh out of law school. I worked in maybe a two-year call at that time. And at the time, uh, the Caring Society, actually, the complaint was filed and written by Cindy Blackstock. According to the documents on the Canadian Human Rights website, you can file your complaint on your own and you can go through the process being self-represented. Uh, but the reality was that after the complaint was filed, the government lawyers got a hold of it and realized that the stakes were really high for Canada. The cost and so a huge team of lawyers tried really all of the procedural tactics possible to try to get the case dismissed before a hearing. And it's uh, about that time that the Caring Society retained counsel to represent them in the process. We asked her about some of the ways the Canadian government tried to get this case dismissed before the hearing. They filed something called a motion to strike before the Human Rights Tribunal. A motion to strike is something that we see in civil cases where statement of claim is filed and there's no chances of success. It's really an exceptional tool that courts use um, when really there's just absolutely no use um, to proceed with the matter without hearing uh, any evidence. The human rights process, there's when you file a human rights complaint federally, the Human Rights Commission, there's a team of investigators who will look at the complaint and determine whether it's a complaint that ought to be referred to the tribunal. So that screening process already exists. If you get to the tribunal, it means that you have... Uh, you don't necessarily have a winning case, but you certainly don't have a frivolous case because the commission has already made that determination. So it was a bit uh, surprising to hear some of the arguments that were made. They also made different arguments about jurisdiction and comparator groups that would essentially result in First Nations people not being protected under the Canadian Human Rights Act. Luckily, all of those arguments were dismissed by the federal court and the federal court of appeal. In 2019, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ordered a compensation package which wouldn't have come without the efforts of the Caring Society. We asked Anne Levesque what this compensation package contained. The, the Caring Society and the Assembly of First Nations uh, sought to assert their rights under the Canadian Human Rights Act, and the, there's two kinds of remedies in human rights law in, in Canada. The first ones are, well, the really important ones are forward-looking. It's to eradicate discrimination, right? So prevent future discrimination from occurring. The other one is backwards-looking. It's about making victims whole. Uh, so the Caring Society and the Assembly of First Nations sought compensation for the victims of discrimination, so the children who were remo removed from their homes and uh, those who were denied essential services under Jordan's principle and uh, their parents. So that is in keeping with 
basic principles of human rights law that when you're a victim of discrimination, you're presumed to experience a harm, uh, an infringement of dignity. And that's what that compensation is, is meant to address. It's also meant to deter discrimination. And Canada was also ordered to pay $20,000 per child and their parents or grandparents because the discrimination was found to be willful and reckless. So that's kind of equivalent to what you see in civil cases, punitive damages, but it's when party is lawfully disrespecting the law. Um, they're, they know their legal obligations, they're not respecting them, and they're making a decision to continue to discriminate just because it's costing less. Uh, so we were, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my colleagues because I didn't argue the motion. I was on maternity leave. So it was David Taylor and, and Sarah Clark who did really an outstanding job in arguing that motion and uh, being successful. We asked Professor Levesque about the 2016 verdict too, wherein the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found the Canadian government to be racially discriminating against First Nations children. Well, it was the first time that Canada had been found by a legally binding authority uh, to be racially discriminating against First Nations kids. It was significant in that what the tribunal articulated in terms of what Canada is required to do to comply with its human rights obligations was something I've never seen in, in Canadian jurisprudence before. The tribunal described Canada's approach to the funding of services for First Nations children as putting pillars on a house with a broken foundation. And what uh, the tribunal said is, you know, this doesn't work. You have to tear down the house and build a new foundation. And that kind of gave a sneak preview of what the tribunal ordered later in terms of long-term reform. The tribunal also, you know, in from a children's rights perspective, the case is very innovative because it's the first time, again, to my knowledge, that a non-discrimination body or court has found um, in a children's rights case that the best interest of the child is a component of the right to equality. So throughout all of its decisions, the tribunal is very concerned about uh, Canada acting in a manner that it is in keeping with the best interest of First Nations children and providing services that take into account their cultural, geographical and historical needs. And what did the tribunal order in terms of long term support? Well, there's been a host of remedial um, orders made since 2016. Essentially, 2016, the first decision was a decision on the merits. So the tribunal found that there was discrimination and that the discrimination was harmful to First Nations kids, that it was incentivizing their removal. After we received the decision on the merits, it was an interesting time. The Liberals had just gotten elected, and we got the impression, or at least we were told, that you know this government was committed to reconciliation and building a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. So they told the tribunal not to worry, that they accepted the findings, and that they would fix everything. But shortly after, we got the budget, and what we saw was that the funding formula that the Liberals were using to fund child welfare services after receiving the decision were actually conservative funding formulas that the tribunal had deemed to be discriminatory. So the, the government actually did nothing to respond to the decision. It said it embraced the decisions, agreed with the findings, but didn't change any of its behavior. So we had to go back and file non-compliance motions and ask the tribunal to make findings that Canada was willfully ignoring legally binding orders and asking for more precise orders to compel Canada to stop its discrimination. Human rights damages usually in law 
you know, in a private lawsuit, when you get compensation, you have to have, you know, medical evidence or proof by independent expert who will evaluate the extent of your losses. In human rights law, what we presume is that when you are a victim of discrimination, your dignity is infringed. And that's something that is non-tangible, but very real that the tribunal will compensate you for. So at the federal level, the maximum you can obtain is $20,000, but that's for the symbolic but very real harm that you suffer when you experience discrimination. It's different than what we see in, in tort law or private law because discrimination is a public wrong. When someone is discriminated against, we all are lessened. And that's what the human rights damages is, is meant to compensate. And then there's the $20,000 for willful and reckless. And that's really to deter discrimination. It's because governments and large corporations have a lot of money and they might make the calculation if there's no cost to discriminating that they might do the math and figure out that it's cheaper to discriminate and hope that no one files a human rights complaint against them. So that money is there to deter discrimination, because that's what we saw actually in the tribunal's evidence is Canada knew it was discriminating. It knew it was harmful, but it continued because it calculated that it was cheaper to discriminate than, you know, the risk of paying out eventually. So you need to put, just like you need to put a, a cost to carbon, you need to put a, a cost to discrimination. It's a, it's a social deterrent to this social wrong. From the Caring Society perspective and the Assembly of First Nation, the, the compensation that was sought was for human rights violations. So as I said, it was really for um, compensation for the infringement of dignity that is presumed to occur when you experience discrimination and also because the discrimination was found to be willful and reckless. We could have asked for more because under the Human Rights Act, you were entitled to compensation for any loss or harm you've experienced because of a discriminatory act. So, for example, if you don't get a job because of discrimination or you have to you know, pay a, a psychologist or a therapist because of discrimination, you can get compensated for that. We only got compensated for non-tangible harms, the infringement of dignity. So I think that's a really important thing to remember that Canada is not on the hook for that much. It's really just a symbolic amount for the symbolic harm to recognize that what was done, but the, the harms are much greater than what is actually being compensated for, but th they are the maximum amount that you can get for each category of compensation under the Canadian Human Rights Act. We're currently working on the issue of long-term reforms, and there's a lot of issues to discuss the implementation of Jordan's principle, for example, the investment in capital and all of the infrastructure supporting services for First Nations children. We need to think about um, accountability mechanisms and changing the culture within the government of Canada that is colonialist and discriminatory towards First Nations kids. There's a lot of work to be done. Well, our, our measure is always what are the changes on the ground for the communities and for children. Um, and uh, that's what we're working on. Since 2016, too, there were also class action cases that were filed. 
since the complaint was filed, there were class actions that were also started. And so those are started under private law and I'm not a part of those proceedings. So there's, uh, there are other legal teams working on compensating a broader class of victims and also offering compensation that goes beyond what is provided under the Canadian Human Rights Act. From our perspective, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ordered the children who were unnecessarily removed from their homes and communities starting uh, 2006, so a year before the complaint was filed, as well as their parents or grandparents or caregivers, as well as the children who were denied services, essential services, and who were harmed because of it under Jordan's principle. So those are the, the class of victims who were entitled to compensation under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal parachuted onto that are the class action uh, potential victims and those details are currently being worked out but uh, we're not part of those discussions. Uh, we're at what we hope to be the final stages of the case. We're currently working out all the details, especially re with regards to long-term reform, because that was always the primary objective to filing the human rights complaint is stopping the discrimination, stop making kids victims of Canada's discriminatory treatment. Throughout this case, what really made a difference was the public pressure. There were kids coming to the hearings, letters written to MPs, a huge presence on social media. And we're at really an instrumental time now during the case. So I wanted to thank you for raising awareness about the case and ask you and all your listeners to keep up the pressure because it really is a pivotal time and the time for action is now. Really what we need is for the discrimination to stop and to have really long-term real changes for kids on the ground. And now is the moment to act. So if your listeners want to step up, you can follow Spirit Bear on Twitter and send letters to your MP just to echo to them that it's really important that Canada, you know, not makes the same mistake twice. And uh, now's the time to act. So we hope that your listeners and will will be supportive of the case. Thank you to our guests, Suzanne Reber, John Packer, and Anne Levesque. Thank you to Veldon Coburn and the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society for giving us a platform for this podcast. Follow Spirit Bear on Twitter or go to the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society website, fncaringsociety.com, for more information about the Caring Society. Thank you to my group members as well, Zoe Mason, Pasha Thompson-Jones, Jaden Pease, and Fabian Alvarez. My name is Brendan Keane. Thank you for listening.